Hello and welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto. I hope you're all well and rested, ready for 2022. We have some pretty incredible guests lined up for the start of the year and we are so excited to share these conversations with you. But we also value and appreciate your feedback so much. So if there's a topic that you'd love to see us cover or someone you'd love to hear from, let us know over on Instagram at Tapping Into Crypto. Now, today's episode is pretty interesting. After our chat with Chloe White a few weeks ago explaining the proposed reforms into cryptocurrency, we decided we wanted to explore this topic a little bit more and really explain why they are important. This week's guest is Dr. Aaron Lane, who is a lawyer, a legal academic, and amongst other things, is a research fellow in the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Now, this is ranked number two in the world for blockchain research. Along with that, he practices law and specializes in fraud, misconduct, and financial crime, particularly when it comes to cryptocurrency. So through the episode, we go back through the reforms and explain exactly why these are important, who will benefit, and what perhaps isn't covered by the proposed changes. Dr. Lane also shares some of the projects he is most excited about at the moment, and we explore who is currently leading the way when it comes to supporting blockchain and crypto activities across the world. Now, this episode is also pretty detailed and we chat about DAOs and LLCs and a couple of other terms that you may not have heard of before. If that's you and you haven't listened to our episode with Chloe White, jump back and tune into that one before you continue here and we will pop that in the show notes. So whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Aaron Lane. It is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to join you. And people will have just heard in the intro that we've done for you that you lead and are working at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub, which is so exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the work that you do? Yeah, of course. So the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub was founded a few years ago now, which in crypto terms is like a lifetime ago. I, <laughs> I kind of feel like it's like dog years, you know, like okay. a year in crypto land is, is at least seven years, I think in sort of light years. But so 2017, and that makes us the oldest social science research center on blockchain. And so why that's significant is, is because at the time, there were a number of different research centers around the world that were looking into blockchain technology, but they were looking at from a computer science sort of perspective and sort of the underlying kind of technology. We were the first research center to look at this really as a, from a business school perspective. And so our research center started out with really a, a team of economists and, and finance people. Myself, I've got a legal background. I was still kind of finishing my PhD at that point. I've then gone on to kind of join the hub more formally once I finished and we've continued to grow. And so over time, we've now got people that have got history expertise and communications, you know, backgrounds and sociology backgrounds and kind of that law and technology systems kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we're continuing to grow, continuing to do some great work and we're really, really fortunate to be listed as the number two university in the world on the Coindesk rankings for universities, so second to NUS in, in Singapore, and really punching above our weight on the international stage. And so we're really, really proud of that and the, the work that we're doing, really industry-led research 
that's been our philosophy really from the start was to partner with industry, find out what kind of questions industry we're interested in. And we've worked with small startups. We've worked with huge kind of global companies, you know, the AFL and organizations like that. And so everything in between. And it's that kind of deep connection to industry that I think fueled our research. And although we started as a research center, we're now pivoted to the education sort of offering. So we've got bachelor's and master's degrees in blockchain-enabled business. We've got you know, graduate certificates in new technologies and the law and those sorts of things. So yeah, it's a really exciting place to be. A hundred percent and groundbreaking and so innovative and just really cool work that you're doing. A question that we ask everyone to the podcast is what was your very first crypto purchase? Well, I sound a bit boring because at the same time, I kind of bought a bit of Ethereum and a bit of Bitcoin. And I think I, I think I spent about $500 a few years ago now. And that was the first step into the game. I've got a bit more kind of experimental as I've gone on. And I think it's really important for whether you're an academic, whether you're a practitioner, or whether you're just trying to learn more about the space, you just learn by doing. And there's nothing like, you know, downloading a wallet and transferring from different addresses and playing around with new projects. And then all of a sudden you get these like random airdrops and you're experimenting on kind of DeFi liquidity pools and whatever. So the, the, the best way to learn in this space is by doing so, you know, I don't, I don't force my students to go out and buy crypto, but I certainly encourage them to just put a little bit in just to play around. So yeah, it's because it's also new. And, you know, there's now articles and research papers and everything being written on it. But right. otherwise, you you kind of have to get in the detail to really understand what you're doing and what you're working with, which just allows you to learn even more. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also got a legal practice. I consult for a law firm, Duxton Hill, it specializes in sort of fraud and misconduct and financial crime and those sorts of things. And so having the knowledge that, oh, yeah, okay, I've been on that kind of cryptocurrency exchange before and I kind of know how to just say to the client, oh, you need to click here, here and here to download that information that is then useful for me to be able to give you advice. So it's just that kind of practical sort of stuff as well that really makes a difference, I think. Definitely. And a lot of people, even on this podcast, the chats that we've had so far are primarily around using cryptocurrency to invest. That's what people are doing right now. But there's so much behind that. We all know that. We all know that blockchain is a technology and there are so many incredible projects. That's what we're investing in. We're investing in the projects and that's the reason that we're seeing returns. What are some of the exciting advancements that you're seeing in tech and these projects? Well, look, I mean, I I think we've always sort of seen new kind of things that are coming on and I got to say, it's a difficult thing when you're a researcher and, and you're an educator. You know, you're writing up case studies for sort of research articles. The academic publishing is really slow. Mm. Um, and so you might be writing up these case studies. And we had this issue actually with an article that I, I co authored with two of my colleagues on blockchain based dispute resolution. And I think we'd submitted it, it had been accepted. And then the editors kind of going over the last sort of edits. And as it turns out, like one of the projects that we've written about, the URL had completely pivoted into a different model. And, um, you know, it's such a fast-moving space. And it's the same with sort of courses as well. You're sort of trying to come up with this content. And as soon as you've kind of written it, something else has sort of happened. But so, I mean, for me and for what I'm kind of particularly interested in from my own kind of research is, I guess, is the applications that DeFi 
is providing kind of traditional entities with new prospects for, I guess, blockchain applications. So when we were talking to industry bodies and other sort of corporate entities three or four years ago, it was all really about tokenization of you know, kind of registries and information and that sort of thing. And look, we've worked on some really great projects. You're based in Queensland. We worked on a Queensland project where it's dealing with water rights trading. Mm -hmm. And so we're working with Civic Ledger on that project. And that tokenization of kind of registries and that sort of thing was really the first iteration. Now what we're seeing in the DeFi space is Bodies that have got like large amounts of capital that kind of are sitting there doing nothing. Well, here's an opportunity to kind of put that to work. So I think that's created a really exciting opportunity for different kind of blockchain ecosystems to think about really the offerings that they can make in their ecosystem. And so I think you're seeing a lot of stable coin plays and those sorts of things to add that level of functionality. And obviously, I mean, NFTs has been a massive kind of topic of interest and really captured mainstream attention, you know, where you've got MBA stuff happening, when you've got kind of mainstream artists, whether they're visual arts or in the music space, that have got different projects. And so that's something that I'm kind of looking at at the moment is in the, the creative industry space and, and copyright and then music streaming and those sorts of things. So the, the idea of kind of NFTs as a collectible, but also adding value to consumers on the top of that as well is a fascinating kind of thing. So I'm not quite sure where it's going to go next, but I'm, I'm sure something's around the corner pretty soon. Definitely. And we have an incredible episode all about all things NFTs. Um, so if you haven't listened to that one yet, jump back and listen to that because there is so much around the capacity for that and where it could head. And we do dive all the way into the metaverse in that one um, and talking about how smart contracts can really build the next... I guess, version of society with that sort of technology. But yeah, if you haven't got into NFTs just yet, jump back there. I love the work and all of the things that you've been doing so broadly, but especially, I guess, the commentary that you've had around the Senate recommendations. And we did a really cool episode with Chloe White, uh, yeah. who was also part of that committee. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of those and how you think that's going to change the space that we're playing in Australia. Yeah, look, great question. And Chloe's great. We've worked with her closely when she was working kind of inside the department and, and now she's gone out and doing exciting things on the outside as well. There are a couple of things that, that I would say about the Senate committee. The, the first is that this didn't start as really a crypto inquiry, but it kind of ended up that way. And, and I think the committee did a good job in that they kind of came out with this interim report where it kind of started to touch on some crypto sort of stuff. And it could have just ended there. You know, the lawmakers could have said, oh, that's all a bit strange. That's a bit too hard. That sounds like hard work. We're going to sort of park that and, and leave it to the, the regulators to kind of sort out amongst themselves, which was kind of what they'd done up until then. But the committee didn't do that. They said, hang on, we've got a bit of time left. Let's call for another round of submissions. We've put out another issues paper and really specific on crypto sort of issues. And so I think that's the first thing to say is that it takes good sort of policy makers to be able to do that. And so I think that the committee should be commended for their efforts there. What I think industry was calling for, certainly we were making this submission with a number of my colleagues, that industry needs regulatory certainty. 
And we can't have a situation where if you're a digital currency exchange, you just don't know what the law might be from one year to the next and you don't know what's around the corner. That's a pretty uncertain space if you're going to you know, invest a lot of money to establish something in Australia. The second issue you know, with the, the regulatory certainty is that kind of consumers on the other side, you know, don't have a lot of certainty about what to do. You know, I mean, in my legal practice, I advise people that have been scammed by people that have used cryptocurrency as a medium for that kind of scam. And, you know, so some of those are wanting to invest in cryptocurrency and some aren't, but cryptocurrency has been used. And there's really not a lot of places that consumers can go to and get quick kind of easy assistance on that. And it's actually very difficult to find out whether a cryptocurrency exchange is regulated or not by the money laundering and counter-terror financing sort of stuff because it's not public. You know, there's a register, but it's not not a public register. So I think that kind of investment certainty, the consumer protection sort of stuff was there. And I think the other liability issue that goes broader than just exchanges I think that was a focus of the work, but it goes broader than that, is that if you're in some sort of a blockchain-based organization where it doesn't quite look like a traditional setup, there was a real risk that a lot of these crypto projects were being boxed into being a managed investment scheme. And that comes with um, incredible amount of reporting obligations and regulatory obligations. And some quite severe consequences if you get that wrong. Yeah. And I guess the, the question, one of the questions that we posed is, well, what if you've got a managed investment scheme that doesn't have a manager? And that's really what we know is a DAO, really, where you've got kind of a community of people that are coming together. They don't necessarily know each other. They don't necessarily have the same interests. They're not carrying on a business together necessarily, but they're still making decisions. And so... I think what we needed for the future was some liability protection and some legal certainty around those sort of things. And so I think the most exciting thing to come out of the committee was the recommendation that we create a legal entity for DAOs. And so I think what the committee managed to achieve was one, a pathway to regulatory certainty. Now, it's not the pathway that you know, we submitted, but I still think it's a good starting place. Sometimes there aren't right answers in this area. There's a menu of options. And I think the committee have chosen one that I think is a good starting point because it uses an existing mechanism. That is the, the market licensing mechanism that already exists under the Act, but they'll make it kind of a special one. So that that's for the more cryptocurrency kind of exchange types of businesses. I then I think when you get to the more you know, perhaps innovative business structures. We've got a pathway there as well. The other area of the report that we focused on was tax. Yeah, um, huge one that lots of our listeners are very interested in. Yeah, well, it's going to be a major problem. And I know, I know the um, the tax office is writing to everyone. I know, you know, when I was filling out my tax return, there was a, are you sure you don't have any cryptocurrency sort of things to, are to you report? Sure? <laughs> you know, and, and because somewhere along the line, they've got people's details from the cryptocurrency exchanges and they've kind of data matched that, that sort of thing. And it's going to be an issue because if you're playing around in a DeFi liquidity pool and, and you're getting, you know, whether it's staking rewards or whether it's, you know, the liquidity sort of mining rewards, it's very difficult to come up with 
you know, is that income? Is it like what's your cost base for those transactions? You're doing a lot of them. You know, if I'm swapping one crypto asset for another one, okay, well, that might be a capital gains tax event, but how do I, you know, remit that payment? Like there's, there's a lot of complexity to those sorts of things. And so I think what was needed was just like a really straightforward, kind of simple, you know, where there's been real gains that have actually been realized, that should be a kind of a taxable event. Nobody, I mean, be nice if everything was tax-free, right? Yeah. And it does open up this huge can of worms, but it would be really nice to have some clarity on that. And I think that's what the the reforms are going to do, hopefully, is give us some sort of certainty and clarity for moving forward in all of those three spaces that you spoke about. Something else that I'd love to ask you, doing your research, you're exposed to a whole heap of environments where people are doing a lot of really incredible work in this space. Singapore, especially, are doing amazing things over there. What sort of things are you seeing that we're not? doing over here? Look, I mean, different jurisdictions are moving at different paces. And I mean, I look at the Dow space, you know, that's a space that I kind of look at pretty closely. And Wyoming this year, earlier this year, passed a bill that means that you can incorporate a Dow as a limited liability company in Wyoming. And I think that those sort of changes are significant for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that people are kind of worried about liability in these things. And it's serious cash. Like Dow's have got billions of, yeah. of, of dollars worth of crypto assets under management. These are seriously big kind of entities, if you can call them those. And so I think that's important. The other thing is that just the ease to which you can establish something. So there are at least two examples that I know off the top of my head associated with Aaron Rice, who's based in the East Coast of the US. And he's got two projects that the Lao and Flamingo Dow, two of those projects. He's probably involved in others as well. But, but both of those are kind of these Dows that have been wrapped in a legal entity. And he's done that through, when I say he, I mean, he's kind of wider group and team have done that through Delaware. They've incorporated an LLC and, and used that sort of model. And when the law was being passed in Wyoming, one of the state legislators kind of said, look, we're not doing anything in this bill that a smart attorney couldn't have done already. All right? But instead, what we're doing is making it accessible and easier for people to achieve that. And so I think that's really important in that those tools shouldn't just be available for people that can raise substantial amounts of kind of investment capital to be able to afford that kind of high-end legal advice and business structure sort of thing. I, th- I think these sorts of things should be accessible to most ordinary kind of people that are playing around in this space. And so I think moves for legislators to make it really easy and, and much more cost-effective, I think, is a really, really good thing. So... Hopefully, Australia, Singapore, UK will follow, but we'll wait and see. Yeah, definitely. And it is that space, as you mentioned at the start, something that's moving so quickly. You know, a year is a very long time and everyone at this moment doesn't seem to want to be last, which is exciting. You know, usually it's just take that slow approach and get there when we get there. But everyone really wants to be pioneers here, which is an exciting place for us to be in. Yeah, well, I mean, countries are competing for talent here. So this is regulatory kind of arbitrage, right? Like you have these sort of tax havens, you know, to encourage people to set up their business, you know, offshore in a particular location. Well, what we want to be seen as is a crypto-friendly jurisdiction, 
you know, from a regulatory point of view. And my colleagues in the blockchain hub have done some work around a crypto friendliness index that was put out a couple of years ago now as an early kind of snapshot of where countries were. But it's that idea that capital's mobile and capital is even more mobile in a native online industry. You know, that the reality with blockchain and, and crypto is that business can set up anywhere that they have a computer and an internet connection. And people have a choice then about, well, where do they kind of establish their foothold kind of connection into the real world? And I was in Vietnam a couple of years ago. I attended a government conference on blockchain. And I was speaking to a senior sort of figure in the government there. And, you know, it was a pretty general question. You know, Aaron, what can we do to have a blockchain industry in Vietnam? We want to have a blockchain industry here. And I said, oh, look, you know, with all sort of due respect, you have a blockchain industry here. It just so happens that they've all incorporated in Thailand or in Singapore because you don't have the permissions to set up here. So, Capitals Mobile, I think whether it's an exchange, whether it's an NFT play, whether it's a DeFi kind of DAO project, every one of those projects can look around the world and say, right, we're going to set up in this particular jurisdiction because you know it's going to be friendly to us and we're competing for talent and we're competing for investment. Yeah. And the barriers, even as consumers, are getting removed more and more every single day. You know, we've seen the schemes come on board. We've seen PayPal chat about it. Like there's lots of things happening in the space that's just meaning that everything is more accessible. So, you know, it doesn't feel we've spoken a lot in the past about the bull runs and the bears that follow, but it doesn't feel like we're going to have that this time. You know, not as, not as severe anyway. Look, I'm not great at the market speculation stuff. I'm the lawyer in the team. The, the finance and economists are, are probably better placed on those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, I think what we do see is every time you kind of get the bull run, you get the excitement and you get you know these new things that, that kind of happen. And then everyone kind of bunkers down for a while afterwards. And so, as I said, it's kind of like the cycles in this industry are much quicker than the cycles that you might see in the general economy. But th- those cycles exist for good reasons. You know, there's good evolutionary reasons as to why we see, you know, boom and bust in the economy that, you know, the bust sort of cycle is the mechanism for redeploying capital from unproductive projects to more productive projects. And, you know, so we're never going to be able to get rid of those cycles because they're natural. They kind of happen organically and they happen for a real sort of proper evolutionary purpose. You know, Joseph Schumpeter famously described that as kind of creative destruction in the macro sense. Those bear runs are kind of where that takes place the most. Yes, definitely. And you mentioned DAOs before, which are really, really interesting concepts. Is that where you're spending most of your time researching at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. So I've got a number of different kind of balls in the air in terms of research projects. Well, one of those is definitely DAOs, the idea of of a separate legal entity for DAOs and corporate personality. And what does that mean? I've got colleagues that have done some great work on, you know, this idea of it being an evolution of the company and, and those sorts of things. So that's a space that I'm increasingly involved in and writing about. The other area that I'm focused on is what cases have come before the Australian courts on cryptocurrency and blockchain sort of more broadly. And so to date, there's well, at least till the end of 2020, 
There's been about 100 cases that have come before the Australian courts that have been reported on. And so I'm just in the final stages of doing the first kind of research findings out of that project. So yeah, those are the first two. And then I've also got kind of a project on copyright and intellectual property and blockchain. And that's more about this idea that blockchain is a tool for governance. It doesn't create, you know, new types of creative works in the same way that, say, a computer came with software and, and those sorts of things or new types of creative works for the computer. Well, with blockchain, there's not really a new type of creative work. It's more about how that creative work is governed. And, and so I had some initial work out on that early this year, and that's a project I'm continuing, particularly looking at music licensing and royalties and those sorts of things. My gosh, so interesting. And there's so much in that space that is changing with blockchain technology and changing with all of the projects that are happening right now. And that ownership would be something that's really interesting to unpack and and dive into. So And and changing for the better. I mean, to I think the it's that kind of decentralized idea of owners having more control over the rights that they've got and you know, consumers also being empowered to kind of see the, the origins of that and being more transparent and open. And so I think those things will be good for the, the creative industries. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Super exciting stuff happening there. So at the moment, as we mentioned, there, there are some articles coming out and there are some education pieces, excitingly down with you guys as well, some official education. If someone's wanting to start learning more about this stuff and learning about how the changes are coming about and cryptocurrency and, and blockchain in general, where would you suggest they start? Look, I mean, there's a range of options. Let me talk about RMIT's sort of offerings first, if, if I may, which is... There are kind of two ways you can go. If you want to actually do a formal, you know, business degree specializing in blockchain, then we've got both undergraduate offerings and, and postgraduate offerings in blockchain enabled business. And what that allows is, is real depth, not in just the applications themselves, but the theoretical underpinnings to really craft that analytical mind that you'll need if you want to be working on those, you know, kind of whether it's new projects, whether it's designing kind of governance or whether it's the the tokenomics sort of side of things. That's what those degree programs are about. They're about the business model, you know, the changes that underlying tech can bring. There are more shorter versions. So I manage a program called the Graduate Certificate of Emerging Technologies and Law. And so that's more kind of law and regulation focused, but you know, it's a graduate certificate, so it's a bit shorter than a full master's degree. And then we've got a short course offering. So we've just launched in conjunction with Future Learn a course on DeFi. And yeah, you can you can sign up to that on the Future Learn sort of website. And that's more much more of a kind of short course idea. But you know, I think that there's some great other sort of material out there as well in podcasts like this one and you know YouTube sort of channels and those sorts of things. There's a lot of rubbish out there as well. Yeah. I think that is something to sort of watch out for, how to sift through that. And is there anything else that you wanted to share with someone who's, you know, just even venturing into the space or has been here for a while and they're excited about it, but maybe even frustrated about the the challenges that we've spoken about today? Is there anything else that you want to share with them? 
I would just encourage people to get involved in the different communities that are going on. So, you know, for me, I've had a lot of really positive experiences in getting involved with groups like, you know, the Digital Law Association and and Blockchain Australia and different, you know, when we could meet up and meet up events and, and those sorts of things. So, I think those sort of groups are good to kind of get involved and contribute to. And I guess more broadly than that is, is just, as I said, it's kind of learning by doing. And if you want to learn about something, the best way is just to get kind of stuck into it. And I think the user experience can be poor, you know, in some places, I think in crypto. And so, you know, the more that people can kind of get in and contribute their skills and talents, I think the better. Well, it has been absolutely incredible speaking to you today and lots of insights around the regulatory space and and all the things that are happening in the crypto world. So we will pop everything in the show notes for people to get in touch. But if they wanted to chat to you further about this, where can they find you and your work? Look, you can look me up on the RMIT website, rmit.edu.au. And my legal practice is at Duxton Hill. uh, So duxtonhill.com.au. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 